wonderful. It's uh, uh, it really is. It came out years ago as Coke Black, and it is one of my favorite. Uh, I don't like. I mean, I think I don't know. I it is one of my favorite uh, fizzy beverage products in the world. So uh, you just stop it. Um, and actually, on that note, uh, I was told. Uh, I was asked earlier if this would be my illustration, and I said no. Uh, but I'm going to take a quick minute to talk about coffee uh, and about palate. Um, my daughter has the attention span of a hummingbird, right? That's that's about right, right? Maybe a little shorter. Uh, she is uh, constantly in motion. She has trouble focusing on anything for two or three minutes. And as an experiment in the last few weeks, we have decided to give her coffee in the morning. Um, because like uh, with certain kinds of attention problems, uh, caffeine is like the poor man's Ritalin, right? And so we are giving her coffee, but as it turns out, my, my angel, the, the apple fell on the wrong side of the fence and she's got a little too much of her mom in her because she despises the taste of coffee. I'll give you an address to send cards to in condolence. Um, but so the solution has been to add more sugar and pumpkin spice flavoring, which apparently she doesn't like either, so little win. Uh, and all of this other stuff, like we keep adding sugar and syrups and everything else, and I think it's mostly hot chocolate she gets in the morning and she'll sip it two or three times. No, oh, I can still taste the coffee. Uh, and there was a pee under her bed, like giving her discomfort. Um, but her palate has not reached the point where she can appreciate the glorious wonderfulness of coffee, right? She has not reached the point where she tastes it and she feels a revival in her soul. I think you, I think you might need to be quiet. Um, <laughs> Why am I sharing this with you? Well, I have been drinking coffee for years. I, for a while in college, I could blindfold taste the difference between brands of coffee. I can still taste the difference between decaf and regular by blind taste. I, I am a coffee snob through and through. Um, and when you sit us down, um, my daughter and I, if you put a really high-end cup of coffee between us, like Jamaican Blue Mountain, um, last time I mentioned in a sermon, I was given a bag of it. I'm just saying, uh, <laughs> which is very expensive, very high-end coffee. If I put enough sugar in it, she'll drink it and say it's okay, right? Like, but it's got to have milk, and it's got to have sugar, and it's got to have syrup. Uh, it can't have pumpkin spice. It's got to have chocolate. By the way, if you do not have a copy of the sermon notes outline thing, my daughter was supposed to hand it out, but she was too distracted to do that. Raise your hand, and she'll bring it to you, and you will have one to follow along with. So... Um, but there's a difference between us. She has not reached the maturity where she can enjoy and appreciate coffee properly. And to put it in front of her, like in its purest and most wonderful form, black and hot, right, um, is to cause her to stumble. Everybody with me? Ah, see where this is going? Um, because she just hasn't reached this point where she can do this. She has not reached this, like, palate, this maturity, this development. There are a lot of hands up up here, little girl. Did you get lost? She's, like, dropping the papers and 
Oh, you are my child. I love you so much. Um, oh, but now her brother's helping, so it's all downhill from there. Uh, anyway, all right. We're, we're in the book of Acts, okay? And here's, this is going to tie in, just trust me. We are in the book of Acts, and like it is, it is, uh, it is the uh, first council of Jerusalem that is going on. And the first council of Jerusalem uh, took place because Paul had gone on his first missionary journey and started converting Gentiles en masse to, to Christianity. And there was this movement in the early church where a lot of Jewish converts were coming along and saying, hey, you can't be a Christian because we're a Jew, you know, without becoming a Jew first. And so in order to be a Christian, you must follow the law of Moses, you must be circumcised, and you must do all of these things as a prerequisite. And there were folks going around already and teaching and preaching in these Gentile churches saying, you are not properly saved unless you are circumcised. Um, and Paul becomes very angry. And he spends, honestly, a huge part of his like preaching and teaching career fighting about this. Um, and there's some great lines in there where he says, I wish those guys would go all the way and cut the whole thing off and just stop bothering us about it. And like Paul is on fire and angry about this. So he brings a group of representatives to Jerusalem and the first church council is assembled and Peter gets up and talks first and talks about how, Hey, look, I saw a Gentile man converted. I saw Gentiles converted and the spirit filled them and they spoke in tongues and performed miracles. And it was obvious that they had converted. And so if the spirit chooses someone, who am I to say they should follow some rules? Who am I to get in their way? Um, and it was, you know, it was very convincing. Then they turn and they listen to Paul and Barnabas talk about their mission. And Paul and Barnabas, no doubt, uh, said the same things that Peter said. Like, oh, well, we saw people filled with the Spirit. We saw people do this. We saw people do that. As sort of uh, like playing into the same hand. Um, and then James gets up. Now, um, at the time, this is all background stuff, so you know, like at the time, Peter, this is after Peter had fled Jerusalem under persecution, right? Like he was going to die. And so he left and moved somewhere else. He's come back to Jerusalem for the event. Um, and there's less like movement to have him murdered because uh, the guy who was uh, king at the time, uh, Herod Agrippa, had died. Um, and so he was able to come back. But in the meantime, while he was gone, James has taken over and he's sort of the head of the organization. Everybody with me? Um, because Peter left the mothership. James was in charge. There was no actual mothership. It's an analogy. There were a couple of people who peaked up. What? Spaceships? Um, so James is about to get up and talk. And before we get into James's talk, I'm going to put this in front of you. This is the main point. You're going to get nothing else out of what I am saying today. Here is the main point. We are called to act in such a way that we build up our brothers and sisters in Christ, never acting as a stumbling block. Now, some of you guys have known believers who make you pretty sure that you want to roll around in porcupine quills before you want to hang out with them. Right? Don't point. But, right? You have known people who you feel live in a licentious way or don't follow certain rules that are expected, and it causes you to look and say, well, wait a minute, if he does this, 
what does that mean for me? Or what does that mean for Christianity, right? Um, and, and there are all sorts of things that people do in their freedom in Christ that can act as a stumbling block, can act as an opposition or create doubt in others regarding their faith, right? Even, sometimes it's straight up sin, right? So like when you look at the pastor who is abusing people around him by, you know, manipulating, you know, you're going to hell if you don't do what I say, or you may not question the man of God, I am here, you know, that, that is obviously sinful, right? But there are things that aren't sinful that sometimes the culture thinks is sinful, or sometimes individuals think is sinful. And what the council comes up with is, look, guys, you have to follow certain rules so that the church works together. And we'll explain it here in a minute. But understand, our calling as believers in Christ, gifted with the Holy Spirit, forgiven, made new, is to build each other up, not trip each other up. Everybody with me? Okay. We're going to jump into 15. Um, this is James speaking. The whole Actually, this is right before. Uh, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul tell about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up, and probably a hush fell over the crowd, right? Because James is the man. Um, Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. What's he saying there? So this is a Jewish man standing in a room of Jewish people, maybe at the temple potentially, right? Which means that they're super surrounded by Jewish people in the center of Jewish everything. And he gets up and he's like, look, guys, God picked a people that ain't his. And he made them his. This sounds a lot like John the Baptist lecturing the Pharisees saying, look, you brag because you're God's chosen people. But I'm going to tell you, he could turn these rocks into God's chosen people if he wants He's God. And that's exactly what we see here. The, the Gentiles who are considered, you know, basically as lost as you're going to get, not chosen by God. God has stepped in and chosen them and said, these are my people now. Right? I am adopting them in Christ. The law, like, or excuse me, the promise made to Abraham that the whole world would be saved through his descendant, which is in one of the first covenants there he made with Abraham, that covenant, that promise, that agreement is in effect, meaning the whole world is under Abraham, a child of Abraham, if they have faith in Christ. Not, this is important because we're talking about, like, do they have to become Jewish to be saved or not? Not by being circumcised, right? Not by being in the law, not by following the cleanliness codes and everything else, right? You can be dirty and adopted. Oh my gosh, I don't have to clean up for Jesus to love me? I don't have to be perfect before God will accept me? I don't have to be not at all. And that is the glorious good news of the gospel that when we were in our sin, when we were wicked, when we were lost, when we were fallen, when we were in rebellion and his enemies... Christ died for us to make us new and that if we just have faith in him, we are forgiven. Gift, free, don't have to earn it. Does that mean I can sin all I want? No, we die to our old selves and we become new people. 
But that's a different conversation because right now we're talking about this. Um, we're going to get into 15 to 18. James keeps talking. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. The rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does, not, who does these things, things known from long ago. And so, um, real quick, the big idea here is the church figured out God has picked his own people, and they are now his people, circumcision, everything else, regardless. Not the right bloodline, right from wrong, you know, you're from the wrong side of the tracks, you're born under a bad sign, oh, you're too wicked, oh, you're too lost, oh, you're too this, oh, you're too that. God chooses his own people. Whoever seeks him is in. That's pretty cool, right? We take a half a second to acknowledge that is awesome. Because if I had to follow rules in order to be saved, guess what? I'm going to hell. And it's true of pretty much everyone in this room. And if you think otherwise, you should really slow your roll and think about, like, how easy it is to sin. It's in our nature. It's, like, designed or not designed into us. It's a part of us because we're broken um, by the fallen world we live in. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them, now here, this is where it gets interesting, okay? Because this is going to look like a bit of a contradiction, and it's, it's complicated. I'm going to try to explain it. It is my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles. Sometimes we see this phrase like we shouldn't put a burden on them. Peter said we shouldn't put a yoke on them, like a you know, big yoke. Um, instead, we should write them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Um, blood refers specifically to eating blood. Okay? I know that's a weird thing unless you're English and you're eating, you know, what is it, blood pudding? And it's actually pretty good. Uh, anyway. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So you might read that and say, well, wait a minute. That sounds like a set of rules. Follow the law of Moses, right? Like everything except the circumcision. What's going on there? What James is saying here, and I'll explain how we know this in a minute, but like just to kind of put it out there. What James is saying here is, is this. If Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, like Christians, all the same, right? Um, If Christians are going to be together, they have to be able to be together. For a Jewish believer to look and say, oh, you're eating meat sacrificed to idols. I can't be near you because you're unclean. That would be a problem because it would mean that you couldn't be in the same room together, right? And that would be divisive it would be a division if they watched somebody eating blood it would be on par with watching somebody eating tofu in montana um except more offensive because it would be a religious well is meat religion here uh, <laughs> it would be more offensive it would be hugely offensive and a huge problem like he's saying listen 
follow the ceremonial laws, like follow these food and sitting down and purity kind of laws, because that's how you get to heaven? No, because the church is going to teach that forever? Actually, still no. Well, why? By the way, sexual immorality is the one that stands out. A lot of commentaries will try and take that and turn it into something else and say, well, this refers to marrying your sister. But that's still, like, not something the church would allow back then. So, you know, whatever. Um, I think that the sexual immorality thing is because the church, right, the church was so unusual in the culture, and pagan cultures at the time were so... um, Whatever they are, <laughs> they, were, they were enjoying each other's company in very carnal ways. There we go. That was really not offensive. Um, the, uh, they, they, were, they were a very different crowd. And so they would look at these Jewish people and be like, oh, my gosh, you guys are nuts. And he's saying, listen, don't forget, you're not like these guys anymore. And if they were to engage in that stuff, it would make them unclean to be around, um, to be around the Jewish people. And the Jewish people would be like, well, wait a minute. Um, The other thing that goes with that is sometimes uh, temple prostitution was a part of worship, and so there might be an element of don't go to the temple and sleep with the prostitutes there as a part of worshiping Aphrodite or whatever. A whole lot there, but he's basically saying, like, be moral sexually, and then here are the rules. Because from the earliest time, this was read in every synagogue on the Sabbath, meaning... All of you people are surrounded by Jews, and if you're going to be with them, and you're going to be believers with them, you've got to get along. Um, they did resolve on a list, right? So that's the next sort of big idea. They did resolve on a list of required behaviors, and these required behaviors were specifically so they could be in community. Um, so the apostles and the elders, uh, with the whole church, we're going to go through this next little bit real fast because it's kind of repetitive, uh, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, by the way, your brothers is a big deal there because these are Jewish people writing to Gentiles. So your brothers implies that we're the same family, which a Jewish person would be like offended by. And Gentiles would be super aware that Jews don't consider us brothers. Uh, To the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Uh, We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Now watch this. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. There's two kind of elements here. Part of it is we've seen the Holy Spirit work in you, so, like, you're good. The other part of it is I think these guys are assuming they're speaking for the Spirit, right? Like, and that's not a small thing. Like, the early church, these guys knew, like, to some degree, we're God's representatives and the Spirit's talking through us. And that's a big thing. I mean, it's huge. Um, he says, listen. The only things we're going to require of you is to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So they sent off. So the men were sent off 
and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, uh, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time with them, or some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas went back to pastoring in Antioch. Everybody went home and they're all happy. Paul, right about this time, writes the book of uh, Galatians, right? In which he tells the churches, hey, ignore those jerks who came through and were teaching that you need to be circumcised. Just kick them out. Don't bother with this stuff. Don't be tricked by it because it's only through faith that you're saved. And, like, that's context for Galatians. Big point here. Okay, so the third big idea, the last big idea that I'm going to kind of highlight in this text is this idea that their letter straight up it disavowed these Judaizers. And as long as these guys are turning up in the church... Um, they say, you know, they're, they're kind of anathema. They're not representing the church properly. They've become sort of a rogue breakaway group. And they affirmed Paul and Barnabas' work, meaning Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish people, meaning like the lost nations of the world can be saved in Christ. So these are the big ideas. Now, behind all of the big ideas, the way we understand Scripture, right, like the way you read and interpret Scripture, you identify the big ideas, and then you look behind it, and you say, what are the principles that are like here? What are the truths that dictate these little bits and pieces of information? And let's have a look at that. Um, Like our big concepts, uh, I always share three. Uh, I could probably do a few more this week, but I will only do my three. The church determined that the law was not the basis for salvation. Let me say that again, saved by grace through faith, meaning I trust God, I have faith that Christ died for me, I have faith that he rose from the dead, I have faith that I will be united with him in eternity, resurrected, um, and before God, innocent, because he died and was punished in my place, that is it. That is what faith in that truth, and like, like leaning on that truth in all that we are, is how you are saved. It results in life change because old Eric died when he realized that was true. Um, And new Eric comes to life a little more all the time. Um, So they handed out these rules, but the rules existed for the body of Christ to be united, right? We, which is sort of funny, they're like arguing and fighting and dividing over like major scriptural issues. What do people divide over today? You voted for who? Right? You can't wear that in church. Right? You can't, you know, listen to that kind of music. You can't do this. You can't do that. We come up with all kinds of things. They're division. You know, like, oh, no organ? Blasphemy. I'll play the organ like Paul did. I mean, churches break apart over that kind of nonsense. We do not generally disfellowship or drive away our brothers and sisters or whatever. Um, But the other problem there is it cuts both ways. We don't fight over theological things, but at the same time, we don't stop and think, how is this going to affect the guy next to me? And that's where this really hits the road in our setting. Because for Paul and Barnabas, right, like these Gentile converts, they don't think, oh, don't eat blood, right? Don't eat meat with blood in it. Don't eat meat from idols. 
so a little bit of background here, just real quick. If you went into an ancient marketplace, there would be meat everywhere, right? Because meat is good, and the ancients knew that it was good. The problem was that they would sacrifice these animals at the temple, and they would sacrifice, like, the best parts, so, like, the tenderloins and, and the backstrap, and all the good stuff is being t- sacrificed at the temple, but the temple only needed so much actual meat. And so they would send it out to the market and sell it. And so you could walk in there and buy stuff from a butcher shop that was also, like, part of the pagan temple. So you might eat a steak that had been sacrificed to Baal. Whoa, can't do that. It's dirty, right? It's desecrated. Um, and that's what the church is being, is, is being told. They're saying, listen, you may not think about it because it's just how you live, but that choice causes your Jewish brothers to stumble and it creates division in the church. Now, how would that play out here? Well, I'm assuming most of the meat shops in Big Sandy, well, we don't have a meat shop. I'm assuming that most of the, the meat packers don't sacrifice to Baal. Though if you talk to ranchers, some of them think otherwise. <laughs> um, but we do things all the time that cause our brothers to stumble. Anybody ever post something loosely on Facebook that hurts your neighbor's feelings and like they just don't talk to you anymore? No? Just me? I'm the only jerk. Um, anybody say something out of hand, um, off the cuff that doesn't seem like a big deal to you, that hurts the guy next to you? Right? We live in a culture of causing each other to stumble and just saying it doesn't matter. We cause division and it doesn't matter. We gossip and hurt the people that we're gossiping about and it's okay. I'm not actually hurting them. But anything that creates division is a problem. That's the big principle behind this text. Um, actually, Paul speaks about these things later. And I, I can't do the whole thing because there's way too much there, but it's such an awesome bit of text. I left my marker in there so I could find it. This is chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, uh, food sacrifice to idols. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, right? Everybody possesses knowledge? This knowledge puffs up. Anybody a little proud about your knowledge? How about this? Anybody read the news and think about the jerks on the other side and think about how much better you are than them? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So Paul prefaces this talk about food sacrifice to idols by saying, guys, love matters more than anything else. You may know that food sacrifice to idols is nothing, right? Therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called lowercase gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. Uh, And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom 
are all things and through whom we exist. Now, real quick, I'm going to start summarizing here. Paul is saying, listen, idols are nothing. You sacrifice to a statue in your yard, you just sacrifice to a rock in your yard. It's not a god. It's not anything. Um, I am routinely lectured because I have back problems, right? It's part of being old and lazy and kind of fat uh, and not stretching enough when you exercise. And I, I sometimes have to do stretches. Anybody know what those stretches are called? Oh, my gosh. And I have been lectured by people about how yoga is Hindu worship. And it, I mean, historically probably is just a marketing idea. I'm just saying. Um, but there are Hindu people who will swear, oh, my gosh, you're worshiping false gods. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like, no, I'm really just trying to get my sacroiliac to pop out. Come on. Give me a break here. You know, like I, I just need to not hurt for five minutes. There was a great Babylon Bee article where it talked about um, – a man doing plumbing under his sink, and as he was getting out, he accidentally did downward dog and was possessed by a demon. <laughs> He's like, ah, oh, crap, I shouldn't have done that pose. It's nonsense. There's no such thing as, like, God is God, and that is it. These poses, these stretches, like, if I'm not worshiping a pagan god, if I'm not, like, kneeling down to an idol, it's nothing. But there are people who stumble over it, so you know what I don't talk about in front of other people? <laughs> yoga, that because it's embarrassing. <laughs> but my yoga pants look good on me. Um, so what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, this food sacrifice to idol thing that they warned you about, yeah, follow it, because if you don't, you might cause someone to stumble. And it would be better to never eat meat again than to eat in such a way that hurts a brother. That's a big thing in Montana especially, right? It would be better to, to never post on Facebook again than to hurt your brother. It would be better to never show up in this building again than to cause one of your brothers to stumble by what you do here. We exist. We exist to build each other up. Paul goes so far as to say you should look at your brothers and sisters in such a way as to where you see their needs as more important than your own. So you say, well, I need this, but your need is more important. I could stand up here for the next 10 minutes and talk about how one crowd's angry that these folks won't wear masks and the other crowd is angry that these folks won't let them not get shots, right? But we all have to love each other and figure out how to not cause each other to stumble. Because I'm going to tell you, none of that matters in terms of eternity. Nothing. I uh, grabbed a quote. I know I'm... kind of all over the place, and I hope this all makes sense. Uh, This is C.S. Lewis uh, saying, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet if at all, only in a nightmare. He's saying, listen, we're surrounded by people who when they're glorified in Christ will be so glorious we would almost worship them. Or they'll be so horrible under God's curse that it's the stuff of nightmares. It's the stuff of horror movies. We're surrounded by people who will be one or the other. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. I'm going to read that again. All day long, we are helping, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. 
It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all mere mortal, or excuse me, all politics. They are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry with, snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or immortal everlasting splendors. It's from The Weight of Glory. I highly recommend you read it. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, everyone you know, everyone you meet, everyone in this room will live forever. And you'll live together forever before the Lord in Christ. Or some of you will stumble and fall and face God's judgment. And if I'm the one who makes you stumble and fall, I'd rather wear a millstone swimming. Right? And we do it all the time. And we think, oh, it's not a big deal. It's my politics. I can say what I want. Right? I know folks that stop coming to church in different places or who are hurt by the church over, over all kinds of politics and all kinds of nonsense, who divide over nonsense that has nothing to do with the gospel. We are people of the gospel. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, like soldiers... We don't get entangled with the civilian affairs around us. We focus on pleasing our commander, right? If a soldier goes to Iraq and spends all his time running a meat market and forgets to be a soldier because he's so busy running a meat market, he's called a crappy soldier, right? You don't get a medal for selling meat in an Afghanistan village. You follow your commander's orders. That is a struggle for the church today because our rights, our individualism, our way, our opinion, our everything is more important. And at the end of the day, only Christ matters. My applications, I'm actually, oh, can you guys put up with me doing something a little weird here? Or are we out of time or out of energy? Come here, Rebecca. Uh, Applications. We're called to do nothing in our freedom in Christ that causes others to stumble. Um, It's important to look for ways to serve each other and build each other's up in faith. Um, This is what part of, this is a part of what Christ demonstrates when he washes his disciples' feet. It's what Paul meant when he said, consider the needs of others as more important than your own. And really at the end of the day, it's what Jesus meant after washing his disciples' feet when he backs up and he says, you'll know or the world will know you're my people by the love you have for one another. My question is, are people going to look at you and say, that guy loves the other believers. That guy loves people who are in Christ who disagree with him. That guy loves his neighbor even though he's a jerk. Do we look like what Christ described us as? Rebecca did this song earlier, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit just because it's a big deal. Go ahead. When they ask how you're doing, just smile and tell them I'm never better. Line number two, everybody's life is perfect except yours. 
So keep your messes and your wounds and your secrets safe with you behind closed doors. But truth be told, the truth is rarely told. I say I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine, oh, I'm fine, hey, I'm fine, but I'm not. I'm broken. And when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not. And you know it. I don't know why it's so hard to admit it. When being honest is the only way to fix it. There's no failure, no fall. There's no sin you don't already know. So let the truth be told. One of the biggest struggles I had early in ministry was I felt like I had to I had to be perfect. No one could see that I stumbled. No one could hear that I sin infected me. No one could know that I wasn't walking on water on my way home from work every day. And I pretended that. And I was awful. I was an awful minister. I was awful as a person because the more I hid my sin, the worse it got. The more I hid my sorrow and my depression and my anxiety and my wickedness and everything else, the more I hid it, the worse it got. And when we walk in the door and we pretend to be perfect so we can fit in well, we might as well be chowing down on a steak with Bale's label on it, right? Because we're causing the people around us to stumble. It's not like we fool them. Church is full of hypocrites. Anybody ever heard it? They know. Christ makes me okay. Christ makes you okay. There's a sign on the door that says, Come as you are, but I doubt it. Because if we live like that was true, every Sunday morning pew would be crowded. Didn't you say your church should look more like a hospital? A safe place for the sick, the sinner and the scarred and the prodigals like me. Truth be told, oh, the truth is rarely told. Oh, am I the only one who says I'm fine? Yeah, I'm fine. Oh, I'm fine. Hey, I'm fine, but I'm not. I'm broken. And when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not. And you know it. I don't know why it's so hard to admit it. When being honest is the only way to fix it. There's no failure, no fall. There's no sin you don't already know. So let the truth be told. One of the best things I think we can do in the lives of those around us, one of the best things we can, we can be in the lives of those that we encounter, the, the horror, the glorified, resurrected sinner, like the best things we can do is to speak the truth. Not to hide, not to pretend, not to anything. But the truth of Christ that sets us free, the truth of Christ that makes us whole. When Paul was talking to the Pharisees, or Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he once said, um, I didn't come to save the healthy, or I didn't come to save the holy, I came to save the sinner. It's the sick that need a doctor, 
One of the ways that we often cause our brothers to stumble, cause the people around us to stumble, um, even cause people who are sitting next to us maybe and have sin and they're terrified to say, this is my sin, um, is because we hide the truth, because we don't confess, because we look perfect. But we're not. We're broken. And in Christ, we can be made whole. Rebecca's going to finish up the song, and I want you to sing along as our closing prayer uh, and our closing blessing. And I, I want to challenge you. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. If you are in that broken crowd, if you are one of those folks who needs Jesus and you're here because you need Jesus, because you know you're imperfect, because you know you fail, because you know apart from Christ you're lost, stand up and sing. And otherwise you can sit and sing, I guess. Um, but if you're broken, stand with me and let's sing together. I say I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine, oh, I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine, but I'm not. I'm broken, and when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not. You know it, I don't know why it's so hard to admit it, when being honest is the only way to fix it. There's no failure, no fall, there's no sin you don't already know. Yeah, I know. There's no failure, no fall, there's no sin you don't already know. So let the truth be told. Take me back to the place that feels like home, to the people I can depend on, to the faith that's in my bones. Take me back to the preacher and a verse where they've seen me at my worst, to the love I had at first. Oh, I want to go to church. I want to go to church You guys are dismissed <laughs>